Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Rebell, of co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, you know, Tyler, since you've moved out there to the West Coast, out in California, I miss having you around here in Austin, Texas, and uh, I've been thinking a lot about going westward, and, and today on the show, we're going to go westward of even California. We're going to go out to Hawaii to do a special show, Tyler, with a great guest of ours that we've had on before, Chip Flesher turns out you can hit that great pacific ocean and just keep going man <laughs> you can just keep going and if you do you might end out there in hawaii one of our favorite places to study on this podcast peter a f- beautiful of course everyone knows that hawaii is a special place but also from a coastal perspective one of the more interesting states in the union to follow a lot of unique challenges in managing the coastlines in the Hawaiian Islands uh, and uh, unique policy issues for a lot of our listeners around the country. The topics will be familiar, but how they are approached in Hawaii uh, is a little bit unique. And we've got a really uh, great guest to help us through kind of getting an update on coastal management and shoreline management in the Hawaiian Islands today, Tyler. We do. And before we introduce them, let's just quickly think about some of the challenges that you would, you know, just from 50,000 feet that you'd have out there in Hawaii. Well, for one, you're on an island. So you've got a finite <laughs> amount of space to work with. Uh, and for two, you know, these are volcanic islands that are typically, you know, mountainous in the middle and the, you know, tapering down to sea level around the edges. And Uh, All the development and most of the people live there around the rim of these islands where you're going to have all of this infrastructure. And that's where sea level rise and the the challenges associated with the coast are. And so Hawaii really is a fascinating place to look at. And Peter, uh, why don't we introduce our guest today? A repeat, a friend of the pod, a repeat guest coming back. Joining us again on the American Shoreline podcast is Dr. Chip Flesher. He is the interim dean at the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. He is the former chair of the Honolulu Climate Change Commission and is very active in shoreline management policies in the state of Hawaii, uh, a real expert on the topic and the perfect guide to take us on an update of uh, shoreline issues, coastal and shoreline issues on in, in Hawaii, Tyler. Absolutely. I can't wait to get into it. We're going to, this is a Hawaii update, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to get right up to speed and what's going on out there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. 
The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at CoastalZoneFoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at CoastalNewsToday.com slash advertising. Well, uh, Dr. Fletcher, uh, thank you very much for taking time to join us on the American Shoreline podcast and uh, give our listeners an update on uh, what's happening in the fabulous Hawaiian Islands. We really appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you, Peter. Tyler, it's great to be back on your podcast. Well, the University of Hawaii, Manoa, tell us a little bit about the uh, School of Ocean and Science, Ocean and Earth Science and Technology at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. Oh, well, um, I am very proud and pleased to be the interim dean of this school. Um, we are a research-focused uh, institute with departments of oceanography, earth sciences, atmospheric sciences, uh, and ocean and resource engineering. We have undergraduate programs and master's and PhD programs, um, 300 faculty, uh, four or 500 uh, undergrad students and graduate students. We're a very large enterprise and uh, we focus on research that extends from um, the ridge tops of our shield volcanoes all the way out to the reefs and down to the abyss. Uh, we are uh, the world's only deep water oceanographic research institute. You head offshore a half mile or so and you're in thousands of feet of water. And we also study um, the heavens. We have uh, research programs focused on the moon and on Mars, analyzing samples that uh, are being collected, uh, producing rovers and uh, observation systems. So it's a very exciting school and um, I'm very proud to uh, temporarily steer it. Uh, if there are any potential candidates out there for permanent dean, uh, give me a jingle. Um, we have a, a search uh, underway for a permanent dean for the school. Well, in the meantime, they're lucky to have you, Chip, and uh, we're lucky to have you on this show. We're excited to pick your brain about all things Hawaiian coastline, but uh, man, the University of Hawaii Manoa sounds like a really super institution. And yeah, if you're listening out there and you'd be an appropriate dean, 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 uh, <laughs> give give Chip a give Chip a jingle for sure. That sounds like a dream job right there. So uh, definitely do that. Now let's let's turn our attention to the Hawaiian shoreline. And uh, by way of doing a little background, you know, sea level rise, Chip, is a a subject all around the American shoreline, all around the world. Um, but I have to imagine Hawaii being an island uh, place that sea level rise uh, presents a unique challenge. Could you kind of frame up how sea level rise uh, has been and is being conceptualized out there in Hawaii? Yeah, um, and, and you're right. Sea level rise is a huge issue here. Um, we have worked hard, researchers here at, uh, at the school and, and my research team in particular, uh, 
uh, focusing on issues uh, of beach conservation, uh, coastal land loss through, through erosion, uh, wave and current processes, sediment transport, uh, and also looking at the reef system here. Um, we have worked hard in reaching out to the community over the years. And as a result, um, you know, it's, it, it's true to say that there is widespread acceptance of the reality of sea level rise. Uh, the um, statement of the recent IPCC uh, assessment report number six, that we are looking at centuries to thousands of years of sea level rise, even if we were to stop our greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow. This is a permanent condition on our shoreline. It's not something that we can hope will go away. It's not something that uh, we can compromise with. Uh, sea level rise and consequently uh, shoreline retreat is a reality. And like most coastal communities, we don't have the policies in place uh, to deal with this situation. The policies in the United States and, and here in Hawaii, of course, uh, governing our coastal management were created in the 1970s. Uh, they, at a federal level, uh, exist with the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration today. And um, they and local entities around the country have been busy producing research products to assist in the conversion, uh, the pivoting of our policies from assuming that the shoreline is going to be somewhat stable through time to now realizing that the shoreline is on the move. And um, it's been gratifying to, to be able to work with government agencies, uh, elected officials, NGOs, and the communities in general around Hawaii who realize that this is a real issue uh, and we need to get on the same page. Now, having said that, it's not all smooth sailing. There are different ideas and uh, different points of view on how to manage the situation of uh, adapting to sea level rise. And so um, we are still in a very dynamic situation, both physically and socially, in figuring out um, how we're going to uh, build resilient coastal communities in a future characterized by rising sea level. Yeah, very clearly a significant challenge, as you say, worldwide, all over the United States, particularly here. One of the things that's unique about Hawaii and makes it uh, an interesting state to follow is the fact that each of the islands uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the state are their own county and have governance authority over the entire island. If I'm, I think I'm right about that. Um, yes. And... What, can you talk a little bit about how the islands may differ in in and how they might approach an issue uh, like sea level rise and policies governing, say, shoreline uh, uh, construction, shoreline development, uh, armoring, uh, setbacks, that kind of thing? When you look at the Hawaiian islands and the individual counties, uh, help our le uh, re uh, listeners understand a little bit of the compare and contrast between these these counties. Sure. Um, and as you said, it is true that each island is its own county, with the exception of Maui County, which actually consists of three islands, um, the island of Maui, uh, the island of Lanai, and the island of Molokai. And um, we don't have townships in Hawaii. So our counties have a mayor 
which is the executive branch of county government, and um, an elected council or county council. And so um, there is this uh, mayor and county council, which uh, is a typical US uh, governance structure. Um, and, and they manage the various communities around their island. And our communities have uh, very distinct personalities. Our urban communities uh, are very different than our rural communities. And rural communities in one location are very different than rural communities in another. One of the um, new characteristics in Hawaii, I would say over the last few years has been the rise of community voices um, when it comes to uh, large scale projects that the community may feel uh, they're not in favor of. And of course, when I say the community, you always get a lot of diversity in a community, but um, we had a situation a couple of years ago where there was a plan to put in a large new telescope on Mauna Kea on uh, the big island of Hawaii and the native Hawaiian community and friends came out in strong opposition to that, um, defying the law, defying the uh, permits that had been approved for construction of that telescope. And they stopped that uh, approved permitted project in its tracks. And that has led to a new sense of empowerment for local communities. If you get enough people interested in stopping a project, um, they have seen that by protesting strongly and coming out against something, uh, they have the capacity to stop a project. And we've seen this take place in two or three other instances since what's known as TMT or 30 meter telescope uh, sort of re-empowered our local communities to take, um, to take a stronger hand, even where county and state permitting have given the green light to certain projects to go forward. And what does that mean from a governance perspective when uh, governments are issuing permits? Uh, I'm sure that that's not a simple process uh, in Hawaii, but that these permits were issued. And then despite that fact and despite all that process that the public did not back it up, what does that mean for from the government of Hawaii's perspective? Well, for, for one thing, it means that when there is a protest that is stopping, literally stopping construction in its tracks, stopping, for instance, the delivery of large windmills or stopping um, uh, installing a, a tennis court at a beach park, for instance, when a community actually will step in the way of machinery uh, and defy the police and defy um, the implementation of infrastructure, we see a great reluctance of the authorities to arrest those protesters. Because what we have seen in the case where there have been arrests is an outpouring of support for the protesters. And you get even more people out there. And you eventually get to where arresting people is clearly not the solution to the problem. And it goes back to the 
permitting process where sort of in a nutshell, during the public hearings portion of um, someone who has applied for a permit uh, to do some large project, and very often it might be a government project, an infrastructure project, uh, during the public hearing process, uh, it used to be everybody has a right to be heard, but not everybody gets their own way. And it's now become everybody gets a right to be heard, but if you can get a voice loud enough, you can actually stop a project and not simply be, if you will, um, have your voice rolled over by the permitting process. It, the, the process of permitting appeared to give legitimate authority to all voices, but in the end, there were just too many cases in history where the projects always won and community voices uh, were not effective in, in stopping these projects. Well, it's one of one of the things about my recent visits over to the Big Island of Hawaii and getting to know the getting to know uh, more about this particular state uh, and reading some of the history. There's a great bookstore in Hilo that carries a lot of uh, academic research and literature uh, on Hawaiian history and the activism of the native indigenous community and its role in shaping the politics and policies of the state. It's really a phenomenal story. Uh, for folks who haven't delved into Hawaiian history, um, when when you're looking at coastal policy now, when sea level rise is going to uh, threaten uh, very expensive uh, tourism and uh, development interests, of course, as it does in every part of America uh, on the coastline, uh, there are debates about uh, renourishment. How do you maintain the beaches? Uh, armoring. Uh, setbacks. Chip, if you can, uh, this activism, this potency of um, the indigenous communities in policy affairs, uh, are you seeing that in the coastal management universe and the issues that you care about? And if so, where is the focus? Where is the focus of the, of the discussion in Hawaii these days? Well, the answer is yes. And I, I would uh, wordsmith your statement a little bit. It's not just indigenous communities, really, um, it's local communities. And very often there, okay. there may be uh, a large indigenous population. Um, where we're seeing this on the coastline is uh, in West Maui. Um, there are a couple of things happening there. Um, there's a section of West Maui called Ka'anapali. Uh, and... Um, it's a uh, resort-oriented stretch of beautiful uh, white sand beach. Um, part of the coastline has been experiencing chronic erosion uh, for decades. Uh, because you get uh, waves in the summertime coming from the south and waves in the wintertime coming from the north, there's a very strong longshore sediment transport system. And so... Uh, you can get strong erosion seasonally that will then get repaired when the sand returns in the following uh, season. And um, with this sort of very noisy longshore uh, process uh, system, there is the slow landward movement driven by sea level rise. And every season, 
more and more of the landscaping along the coast, the palm trees, the walkways are getting undermined uh, from one season to the next because that shoreline, which used to have rich sand dunes, has been stripped of its sand dunes uh, and uh, dirt and grass put down in place of the sand dunes. Um, the desire has arisen to nourish that stretch of coast with sand and uh, uh, consultants have identified offshore sand fields um, that the local community has said are traditional fishing grounds. And uh, because of dredging those sand fields, uh, the proposed dredging you know, would have destroyed them as fishing grounds. Uh, the local community has said, no, we don't want to see beach nourishment take place here. Um, they also say that this is a resort-oriented beach, even though there is public access. They say it's difficult to get there. That's that has been debated by the coast, uh, by the resort organization. Um, they say that they've done everything they can to uh, encourage public access and use of the beach. Our beaches in Hawaii, as you know, are are public up to the upper reach of the wash of the waves, which is often. Um, around the vegetation line or even landward of that. And the, um, the resort owners had an arrangement, uh, sort of a gentleman's agreement with the state of Hawaii to share the cost of the beach nourishment project. And of course it's several million dollars. And the actual cost from the state side comes from a tourist uh, impact fee or a, an additional uh, fee to to visitors. And so it's really visitors that are paying the state portion. And then the resort organization is paying the private portion. And at a recent hearing of the land board, the state land board, where this uh, agreement for this private public uh, payment situation was, many people thought it would just be rubber stamped, the land board would approve it, and they move on to the rest of their agenda. Um, they actually failed to approve it. Um, the five land board members voted against it. They had been listening to the local community who had been coming out strong against this beach nourishment project. Um, and it really set uh, the previous assumption that beach nourishment would move forward uh, in places where it could be paid for. It set that assumption to the side and now beach nourishment is no longer the sort of uh, go-to rule of thumb for, for managing um, eroding shorelines. So that would therefore lead me to believe that the uh, options would be either hardening, which strikes me as being even more uh, you know, off-putting to the local communities, uh, certainly a less natural solution, or a retreat solution, which would put the public's interest in the beach in direct conflict with the resort, with the resort owners and the, the upland development. How is that conversation playing out in the public space? Yeah. So um, a few years ago, uh, we did pass uh, a law here in the state of Hawaii, which essentially um, uh, forbids or, or, uh, outlaws shoreline hardening. Um, the law basically says that uh, any activity that interferes with natural beach processes, um, unless it is for a public purpose, um, will not be permitted. And it 
and it removed previous loopholes to that in the form of landowner hardship. So landowner hardship uh, no longer is the secret to getting uh, a seawall built. And basically this eliminated the uh, problem of shoreline hardening. It's still new, it's only a couple of years old. And in fact, it's, it was challenged in this past session of the state legislature. Um, but you know, your, your analysis is correct. Uh, if we're not gonna do beach nourishment, then that leaves hardening or retreat. And uh, I don't think hardening is really on the table. And so really the local community, one of their, their uh, statements was, why hasn't the Ka'anapali Resort um, identified a plan for retreating from the shoreline? We see no acknowledgement from them, um, despite the fact that there's a lot of land, uh, landward of the resorts where they, they could develop a plan for retreat. Um, there is not one. And so the local community, among the other complaints, said, you know, if sea level rise is real, which the scientists say it is, it seems to us that the Ka'anapali Operators Association should be uh, identifying future relocation, future redevelopment options that move them off the shoreline, not simply going for uh, beach nourishment as their fix. Chip is a student of uh, of coastal issues, a student of uh, uh, Hawaiian history. Uh, what do you think is that? Where do you think this is going to go? Uh, the conflict you're describing, and Tyler has also cl- clarified here, is is absolutely uh, common around the American shoreline. The armoring versus renourishment versus retreat debate. We're starting to see more and more discussion about potential managed retreat options being seriously considered in various places, including along the California coast. Uh, There's some Louisiana examples of that. But uh, looking ahead, uh, given the fact that, you know, as a scientist, sea level rise is inevitable here, unavoidable, uh, where do you think the state's going to go from a policy perspective to effectively respond to the problem? Well, that's a great question. And despite my optimistic words earlier in this podcast about how it's uh, sort of a kumbaya situation here. Everybody recognizes sea level rise as a real problem. There have not been uh, robust solutions put forward. And I think one outcome of um, the situation in West Maui is that we can no longer look at uh, beach nourishment as a short-term solution here, allowing us to kick the problem down the road, kick the can down the road. If beach nourishment is going to be a difficulty, um, it really does force us to face the question of retreat. And um, it becomes a very place-based conversation at that point, right? I'm sure you've, in other podcasts, uh, commented on, you know, short, uh, coastal retreat or managed retreat is easy to say, but, you know, so far no one has really figured out how to implement it. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> uh, here in Hawaii, we all acknowledge that. And we also realize that retreat, for instance, for Waikiki, a heavily developed, 
densely urban area, which is the gateway to tourism in Hawaii, and tourism is the number one component of our state economy. Retreat from White in Waikiki really doesn't strike anyone as practical. And so we're actually engaged in research in Waikiki, uh, working in partnership with our School of Architecture, uh, Professor Wendy McGurro over there, in presenting uh, architectural simulations of what would it look like to develop in place, to learn to live with water for a place like Waikiki, where roads, you know, roads may become um, canals, and please don't use the Venice analogy, uh, uh, buildings may uh, sacrifice their first floors, um, and, and lots of other, you know, architectural and engineering responses to the flood problem related to sea level rise. And that would be very different than, say, a beachfront community on the north shore of Oahu, Sunset Beach, world famous Sunset Beach and Pipeline, where erosion is a huge problem. It's undermining million dollar homes. Um, and it's really not practical to learn to live with water there. We are going to be forced to retreat, and we have a huge illegal seawall problem taking place up there because homeowners have taken um, advantage of the erosion problem and, and put in sandbags and seawalls and things. So we're wrestling with this problem, absolutely, real time. Well, it's, you know, the triggering event that you're talking about here, the rejection of the beach nourishment project at, uh, at Kahanapali, let's say Kahanapali Beach on Maui, uh, was a 75,000 cubic yard project, a $10 million estimated cost. The state was in for $5.2 million on that project. And the uh, Kahanapali Operations Association, the private uh, party, uh, in other words, I think this is a, a, a in in the scale of things, a rather small problem. And why it makes it an illustrative case and an interesting case is uh, that the challenges that Hawaii is grappling with, and actually all of the coastal states in America are as well, uh, are really starting to come to a head uh, as property is is threatened. Um, I wanted to talk about and maybe get your thoughts on some of the recent legislative uh, uh, actions that have been taking place uh, in Hawaii, uh, and the uh, particularly uh, in in Honolulu and what is called uh, the Ordinance Twenty Three Three, the Ocean Setbacks or Shoreline Setbacks Ordinances that are recently being adopted. Uh, can you speak a little bit about what's going on from a legislative or local, this is at the county level, uh, implementation of, pol of new policy? Sure. Um, you know, there have been two very interesting uh, occurrences. Uh, the island of Maui in Maui County passed a new setback, and the island of Oahu, which is in the city and county of Honolulu, um, passed a new setback as well. Now, uh, on Oahu, uh, the setback is based on um, the rate of historical erosion. And so in this case, it's 70 years of historical erosion plus 60 feet will be the calculation to determine your setback up to 130 feet, a maximum of 130 feet. And uh, my research team here at the university of Hawaii has calculated 
using old air photographs and updating them with uh, modern drone surveys, uh, we have uh, rates of historical shoreline change for basically every parcel of Sandy Beach uh, on the island of Oahu, um, also for Maui and, and Kauai. And so the new setback on Oahu, on Oahu of uh, 70 times the annual rate of erosion plus 60 feet is actually the same setback on the island of Kauai. And that setback uh, has been in place for about a decade on the island of Kauai. Now, Maui, um, which used to have a rate-based setback like that based on historical rates of shoreline change, now has a setback that is based on 3.2 feet of sea level rise or 98 centimeters of sea level rise, which is what the fifth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change projected in 2013 as the um, worst case scenario for, for global sea level rise by the end of the century. So uh, my research team took that 98 centimeters of worst case sea level rise by the end of the century and plugged it into our erosion model and gave those results to Maui County and it's that projected erosion by the end of the century that is now the, the new setback for the island of Maui. Woo, that sounds like a significant deal. Uh, I have two questions just generally in terms of implementation. When you're looking at this parcel by parcel analysis and, uh, and trying to interpret and apply the new uh, basis for the setback line uh, based on sea level rise, uh, what percentage of the parcels... Uh, that you that exist are already developed and therefore effectively, I don't know if they're grandfathered, but how many vacant parcels would this apply to? And how far inland does these projected uh, sea level rise uh, take that setback line? Well, there are very few undeveloped parcels on the Maui shoreline. And the new setback goes in, uh, in some cases, two or three blocks. And so we're talking about hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands of homes that are now non-conforming. And so there have to be, and there is, a whole set of rules about what are you allowed to do to this house that is now non-conforming to the setback. And that's where there was a huge amount of discussion that went into passing these rules. Uh, the Maui Planning Commission took, I think it was over two years, with task forces, public presentations, um, lots of public meetings and discussion where um, a group of folks who were against this new setback um, were meeting and finding compromise with uh, folks who were in favor of the setback. And in fact, the setback was proposed by the uh, county administration themselves, the planning department. And um, while the scientific modeling uh, wasn't debated very heavily. What was debated is what will you be allowed to do if your house burns down, uh, if there is a tsunami that damages your home, um, if you want to renovate uh, a portion of your home, if you want to do a total teardown of your home and rebuild in place. So a lot of rules had to be created um, to define what's acceptable under all these uh, eventualities. I love this. Uh, particularly, you know, Chip, I, I'm looking at your 
I'm looking at your CV. <laughs> and just, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Chip, Chip is a geologist. Uh, uh, you, you've studied geology your career. And, uh, but what's so interesting to me is how you are working at the intersection of this scientific data modeling, these truths that we understand will happen, that these, the, the seas will rise. I mean, this is physics, Peter. You always like to say this is, this is a physical reality on planet Earth that we are going to contend, contend with. But Chip, out there in Hawaii, you are also contending with this social thing of governance and democracy and local communities and conundrums like, okay, so we don't want to armor the beach. Where are we going to put this infrastructure? And how are we economically going to survive? I mean, this goes far beyond geology, Chip. Uh, and I noticed that you are also involved, you, you, you comment on the broader spectrum of American culture and society. And I'm just curious, how do you feel like this discussion that is taking place in Hawaii uh, that you just described, kind of getting into the granular detail of what of how sea level rise can impact the building codes and whether or not structures are rebuilt after, say, a, a flooding event. How would you compare what's going on in Hawaii and the thought leadership out there versus what's going on in the continental part of the United States? Is it the same? Is it different? Well, um, that's a great question. Um, I'm actually uh, a little ignorant about what is going on on the continent. We, of course, you know, I'm crossing my screen every day is a lot of news and I plug into as much news as possible related to climate change and sea level rise and coastal issues. Um, and I know that in California, they, you know, which is our closest neighbor, they are struggling with a lot of these same issues. Uh, I don't see very much coming from the East Coast states, um, although I know um, the problem exists there. But overall on the continent, that there is just not, there are lots of exceptions to what I'm about to say, but um, there's not as much crowding on the shoreline as we have here in Hawaii. Now, uh, of course, there are some very heavily developed coastal areas uh, on the continent. Um, but as you, as you said in the intro to, uh, to this discussion, pretty much 98% of all of the Hawaiian population, the people who live in Hawaii, uh, are located down on the flat coastal plain. And, and, and just as an aside and getting to my geologic past, the coastal plain, at least here on Oahu, is actually a, an old fossil reef, which grew under higher sea level the last time that the world was the same temperature as it is today, which was about 125,000 years ago. So we're ironically uh, and, and, you know, quite symbolically living on the bones of what was the reef the last time we had a climate similar to the climate that we have today. Now, it'll take centuries for sea level to reach uh, the height that it was 125,000 years ago, but it's on its way and the evidence is all around us here. Chip is is the dean at the at the, at the university school uh, where these technical issues are being discussed. Tell us a little bit about what the university and what your programming is trying to do to prepare your students, 
uh, your graduate programs, and the state uh, to come up with and have the information needed to effectively understand the problem and respond. Uh, give us an update about what you're doing at the university connected to these the, these complex social, economic, and uh, and scientific issues. Well, one of the things we realized early on was that sea level rise flooding was not just about coastal erosion or waves coming over the shoreline. Um, the coastal plain area uh, down near the shore has a water table under the ground. And um, we had a student who uh, did uh, dissertation research looking at the water table on Maui and how uh, that student discovered that when large waves you know, surfable waves would break in the offshore region on the north shore of Maui, that energy uh, could be seen in the water table, uh, in the well records of the water table. And when I attended that student's uh, defense of their PhD, and he was describing uh, this observation, it dawned on me that uh, as sea level goes up, the water table is going to go up. And so then the question becomes, well, how far below the ground surface is the water table? And it turns out, we went out and looked at this, we got funding, and we found out that the water table um, in downtown Honolulu basically sits at the elevation of high tide in the ocean. And it's less than two feet below the water, below the ground level. So really, it's only two feet of sea level rise away that most of downtown Honolulu turns into a wetland, which is what you get when the water table rises to the ground surface. And of course, you know, our roads, our buildings, all of our infrastructure were not designed for a wetland environment. They were designed for a dry soil environment. And that's, that's just, you know, one type of additional flooding that happens with sea level rise. Another one is that it may be high tide in the ocean the water table will be high and then it rains. So you have a drainage problem and all of our drainage for our urban areas is based on gravity. But if your drain pipes that flow to the ocean are filled instead with salt water that has come up at high tide, gravity doesn't work anymore. Nope. Yeah. What do you do when there's no down? Right. There's no down. And so our research is focused on sort of, um, identifying these different types of flooding and producing a website viewer where government agencies and local communities uh, can look at each type of flooding and based on that develop very unique adaptation strategies because that's what it's going to take. Well, Chip, when, when your team completes the work on, on this uh, shoreline change, uh, flooding, uh, viewing system, data system, uh, you'll have to let us know, make sure we get it. We'll put it on coastal news today and, and help everybody find that it's the kind of technical information all the policymakers have to have uh, pretty interesting uh, work that you are engaged in chip. Um, can you talk a little bit about where you see uh, I know you're the interim Dean right now uh, where you are going professionally uh, once the permanent replacement uh for your position is uh, elected, where where are you going personally, professionally, uh, forward, 
And are you optimistic about the the uh, the capacity of, of of Hawaii to to effectively respond to the challenges ahead that you've been describing? Well, um, thanks for that question. Yeah, professionally, I'll be going back to become a professor of earth sciences. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. I can get back in the classroom and I can uh, re-engage much more strongly with my research team. So I'm looking forward to that. I've always been a dedicated public servant. And so I look forward to doing more public service, uh, finding um, out where I can assist on commissions and things like that. We are very keyed in, my research team and I, on not just taking our scientific research and throwing it over the fence, so to speak, but actually uh, walking it uh, to the government agencies, to the local communities, and helping them interpret what it means so that they can be in control of their own future. Um, I think that sea level rise uh, poses both a great opportunity to re-envision what our coastal communities can look like, <clears throat> you know, in, the, in an optimal sense, but it poses a great risk in that government programs designed to force managed retreat may come across simply looking like the latest chapter of land theft in Hawaii. And, you know, the kingdom of Hawaii 150 years ago was stolen from the indigenous population. And we've had other forms of land theft over the years. Um, so we need to be careful. Uh, the communities, the local coastal communities must be involved at the grassroots level and they must be in control of their destiny, even though sea level rise is unstoppable. And government must truly characterize itself in the role of a servant uh, to the communities here. And I think what we've seen on West Maui with regard to um, stopping the beach nourishment program there uh, is an example of what we want to avoid in the future. Wow. That is the crux right there. The, uh, how can the government effectively respond to these challenges? I think, uh, Tyler, for us on, on, on the network, on ASPN, following Hawaii is a little bit like for me following Louisiana. I'm very interested in mm -hmm. what these sub-communities, these states come up with. I think they're at the forefront, uh, forced to think through things a little bit sooner than others, perhaps. Uh, so, Chip, we're going to be following along with with what you and, and your colleagues in Hawaii are doing in response to these challenges ahead. And please uh, keep us up to date and informed as to what you're doing. We'll, we'll put it in Coastal News today, and uh, we sure would like to keep track of it on the podcast as well. Absolutely. I love what you guys do, and it's always fun to talk to you. So thanks so much. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Chip Fletcher. He is the Interim Dean at the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, and one of the leading thinkers on coastal policy and science in the state of Hawaii. Uh, Chip, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking uh, time out of your busy day to talk to our listeners around the world. We sure appreciate it. Thank you as well. Where are we going to 